Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. A Fascinate Productions podcast for drug science. Hello, I'm David Nutt and I'm pleased to welcome you to this new drug science podcast. Today we have two guests, both of whom work with me at Imperial College. One is Chris Timmerman, who's just finished his PhD research, doing the, the very first imaging study on DMT. And the other is Dr. Chloe Sackhal, who is a psychiatrist who is trained in psychedelic therapy, is actually also helping us run the, the new Cannabis 2021 initiative for drug science. But today she's going to tell us about what it's like to have been a, a subject in one of the research trials with DMT. So welcome. Thanks to both of you for joining me. Thank you for having us. David. Thank you very much. So let's kick off with you, Chris. What, why did you um, want to study DMT and why did you come to Imperial College to do it? Because I, I should have pointed out to everyone that Chris actually is from Chile. And I have a particular affiliation for that country, particularly after what it suffered under Pinochet. So, so when he approached me uh, to come and work with us, I was very positive. But why did you want to come and why did you want to study DMT? Well, first, uh, I appreciate uh, yeah you making that a uh, very important remark about the past of Chilean history. Uh, yeah, often doesn't get mentioned, and it, it is important to to tell about it a bit more. You know, the the whole thing with Pinochet and the horrible things that happened there. Um, I was basically uh, coming out of a neuroscience masters that I was doing in Italy at the time. I have a psychology background. Uh, always interested in mechanisms of mental phenomena more broadly. And I always felt that uh, psychedelics in a general sense uh, opened a unique window into the mind, into the mechanisms of the mind. This idea from a perturbational approach, if you perturb a system, you get to understand it a bit better. And from that perspective, DMT is unique uh, because it generates worlds of experience. It, It generates this idea of immersive states of consciousness. People feel transported into different realities. So the idea is that maybe we can understand something important about human experience and the human mind if we study DMT. And the other major reason is that DMT is part of ayahuasca, which has been traditionally been used in South America for hundreds of years. And it's also part of different snuffs, um, which have been used for thousands of years. And from a personal point of view, if we are serious about understanding human beings, we need to understand these experiences. And DMT is one of them. So Just to share oh, one of my... Uh most vivid memories of Chile with you. I remember when I was there uh, um, visiting my daughter up in the Atacama Desert and going to the museum of the Atacama. And uh, half of all the collection or the items in the collection were devices either for storing or inhaling various forms of DMT. It was quite impressive. Exactly. Yeah, this is one of the largest you know, artifacts of ethnobotany, ethnobotanical history out there in the Atacama Desert. And because it's so extremely dry, it's the driest desert in the world, everything is extremely well preserved. So it's quite amazing. And also a, a remarkably beautiful place as well. It's uh, very interesting. So, Chloe, you're a psychiatrist, uh, and or at least in the process of becoming a, uh, trained as a psychiatrist. What made you want to volunteer for this study? Well, interestingly, a lot of people uh, forwarded me the email about it. I was aware they were looking for a female subject specifically. And I guess a lot of people, for some reason, thought I would be a good fit for it. Um, 
And I think people frequently say DMT finds you at the right time. So, (laughs) but I'm also very, very interested in altered states of consciousness and anything I can do to help further our understanding about these things, I'm very willing to to put myself forward for. Yes, I mean, you've, uh, you also have been very involved in the MDMA study using MDMA to treat alcoholism, haven't you? So, I have indeed, yes, yeah. Becoming a psychopharmacologist, huh? <laughs> Just like you, David, of course. <laughs> we'll come back to that later. So, Chris, so, OK, so tell, tell people about DMT and tell, tell us what your project's about. Yeah, basically, DMT is, um, I guess for the people who don't know it, is a naturally occurring psychedelic compound. It occurs in different plants and also in mammals. So there's evidence that we produce it endogenously, also human beings. It's known for its striking psychological effects. This idea that people have these immersive experiences that are transported into different realities, dimensions. Uh, They have a subjective feeling of communicating with entities or beings, uh, very striking element and it's part of this traditional use of the ayahuasca brew which is used in the Amazon for ritualistic purposes. So uh, it's it's a substance that has that it's relevant not only for its pharmacological and psychological properties but also its cultural use and historical use. And what we've been doing basically in the past five years, uh, what I've been doing as part of my PhD, the main uh, objective of the PhD is basically understanding how the molecule acts in the human brain and what can we also understand better with regards to the experience evoked by DMT and finally how can we bridge these two together uh, mental phenomena and brain experience uh, induced by DMT and as you mentioned David before there's no previous study really trying to understand the effects of DMT in human resting state uh, function so that's what we set out to do and, and for that we administer DMT two participants inside of an fMRI scanner while also we were recording brainwave activity with EEG. Well, that's a very uh, technical um, thing to be doing. Um, perhaps you could explain to people uh, a little bit more about uh, how you got to work out what to do. I mean, you didn't just put someone on a scanner and give them uh, a dose of DNT. How did you go about finding the dose and, and working out the time course, etc.? Because it... it this is very pioneering. It, you know, you didn't have that much to go on before, did you? Yeah, exactly. I mean, the only studies in contemporary research that have been done before with DMT were the studies done by Rick Strassman, uh, Rick Strassman in the 1990s. And the German team that did a couple of studies uh, in the early 2000s. So there wasn't much information out there. So we started off uh, with this initial pilot study uh, in which we basically administered three different doses of DMT to different groups of participants. And because we didn't have much information, we needed to go in a safe fashion. So we, uh, to the first group, we gave a small dose, the second group a medium dose, and the third group a high dose. So Chris, uh, when you're doing these sort of studies, uh, how are you giving the DMT? Because, I mean, of course, t- typically it's either snorted or smoked, isn't it? But you presumably can't do that in the, uh, in the lab, can you? No, we cannot do it because when we're trying to do these experiments, we really try to be as precise as we can with the amount of substance that goes in the body. So we gave it intravenously. And we gave it in this fashion, which is like a rapid administration, a bolus administration uh, in intravenous form of DMT, which is meant to mimic the way in which people usually do it recreationally, which is smoked. And this usually generates an experience which 
is a very profound, strong psychedelic experience, which lasts five to 20 minutes approximately. I see. So you did your dose finding studies. You found the dose which gave a sort of good effect, but was uh, compatible with someone coping with it in a, in a scanner. And then you put them into this, uh, this scanning system. So tell us about what, what the scanner is. Exactly. So the scanner is a, is a fMRI machine, a functional magnetic resonance imaging machine, uh, which basically, basically allows us to understand what's happening in the brain with a good spatial resolution. It gives you a good understanding of where things are happening in the brain. And we combine that approach uh, with uh, what we call the electroencephalogram or the EEG, which gives us a good temporal precision of when things are happening in the brain. So we combine these two approaches, EEG and fMRI, um, to understand uh, in the best way possible what DMT does to the human brain. And this, this actually meant that participants had to go into this uh, magnetic resonance bore, this huge machine, and we basically scanned them for 28 minutes we, and we administered DMT in the middle of that scan just to understand what was happening. So, uh, so Chloe, um, I mean, I, I've been in an MRI scanner quite a few times. I don't particularly like it, uh, at least not for the first 10 minutes when I gradually acclimatise. How did you find that? Just having your, having your head in the washing machine or the body. Uh, luckily, machine. I'm not particularly claustrophobic, so um, it didn't bother me too much. Uh, but actually, the moment the DMT was injected, I had no idea I was in an MRI scanner. So um, that all melted away and I was somewhere else. OK, well, we'll come back, we'll come back to the experience in a minute. So, so you're in the scanner then. And, and are you, is there a placebo as well or is it just a single dose of DMT? What, what's the design here? There was indeed a placebo. I, had, I went in the scanner twice on one day and I didn't know um, whether I was going to be injected with the drug or not. Uh, so I didn't know what to expect. And then I guess you did find there was a difference. <laughs> yeah, it was um, <laughs> a very noticeable difference, yes. <laughs> so you broke the blind, did you? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it, it, was quite, it was quite evident when it was the drug versus the placebo. <laughs> well, talk us, talk us through the experience then. So, it, I mean, it's very difficult to describe because it's so outside of anything I've ever experienced before. But um, it was certainly one of the most intense and profound experiences of my life. Um, the moment the drug was injected, I was no longer aware I was in an MRI scanner or an experiment, but I had been transported to another world that was incredibly vivid, um, colourful, and I did have the experience of there being other um, beings with me, so other non-sentient but intelligent beings that communicated with me, um, but they were very pleasant. <laughs> came to check I was okay. Uh, and I, I then returned to the MRI scanner and it took me a few minutes to remember I was actually in an experiment. Um, <laughs> so actually quite an interesting experience. As you say, very memorable. Yes, yes, I won't be forgetting that in a hurry. <laughs> and uh, what did Chris find? When I guess uh, you, you can't see anything in a single subject, but you, you've studied quite a number of people and then you're averaging the, the measures, are you? Yeah, we, we found different... Uh, things in, in, in the two studies that we performed uh, so far. But in terms of brain activity, I guess the, the best way to describe it is that we saw something with regards to the brain waves and something with regards of what the fMRI was telling us. So, you know, what kind of brain networks were altered uh, when we administered the drug. In terms of brain wave, we found that there was a massive disruption of these alpha waves. And these alpha waves are 
usually what is is a signature that is most prominent when we are detached from the external environment, when we close our eyes and we, we relaxed. This massive disruption of this alpha wave pattern can be seen as this idea of engaging uh, with something that is vivid and as rich in, in terms of information as reality. So this uh -huh. high level of immersion uh, that we saw was marked by this alpha wave pattern and this emergence of theta waves and delta waves, which we also see when people are dreaming. So we found a, quite an interesting parallel there between these two states of consciousness, which when you think about it, they share also you know, phenomenological similarities. People are in a state which is partially detached from the external environment, but nonetheless, they're simulating a reality of sorts through brain mechanisms. So DMT sort of puts you into a, a vivid dream. Exactly. That's, that, that was basically what we found in terms of uh, the EEG patterns. In terms of um, what we found in terms of brain networks, what, what the fMRI uh, information told us, uh, some of those preliminary findings are telling us that basically the the brain, the areas of the brain that relate to the processing of complex abstract information, if you will. So the goal-driven networks, uh, those that are engaged more strongly when we engage in tasks and the areas of the, of the brain that are particularly developed later on in life uh, associated to abstract thinking. Uh, we found that these networks weren't working in their usual fashion, but they were connecting with the rest of the brain in a very dynamic fashion. So they became quite plastic, these areas of the brain. And on the contrary, you found that the visual areas of the brain, so these areas of the brain that are more fixed from early on in, in life, um, they became more crystallized or more integrated in the DMT state. They became more segregated in some sort of fashion. So we found interesting effects that we're still trying to make sense of um, at that level. But the, that, that, that is basically the idea, that the brain becomes more plastically hyper-connected, uh, especially on networks that relate um, to abstract thinking and reasoning, uh, whereas these kind of like more primary sensory areas of the brain, they become more rigid and more crystallized. Interesting. So... So now, I mean, I know you were part of the team that did the LSD imaging study. Is it very similar to LSD, or do you think there are significant differences, perhaps? The broad similarities with the LSD data set is that the brain is more is functioning more globally interconnected. Um, it functions less, as you would say, in a modular fashion, in, in which each part of the brain is dedicated to specific tasks, but instead it's functionally as a whole, more hyperconnected. The main difference is that we found that in the LSD state, the visual areas were communicating with the rest of the brain very in a very dynamic fashion with the rest of the brain. Whereas with DMT, we're seeing a bit of an opposite pattern uh, in, in this preliminary data. Uh, we're seeing that these primary visual areas, they appear to be more rigid, more stable even, to some degree, more segregated. And, you know, some speculative ideas around that could be the fact that people have this very immersive geometrical visions during the experience, and these appear to be quite stable across participants. 
You mean people are focusing on the people are seeing these these are elemental hallucinations are sort of locking into them, and that's locking the visual cortex. Is that the sort of thing? Exactly, and and, and there's interesting uh, mathematical models out there that these geometrical patterns occur in only in the primary visual areas, as opposed to visual areas connecting to the rest of the brain. So that could be one of those possibilities of how can we explain this this data. We'll get back to the interview in just a second. I just want to thank all the Drug Science Community members for your continued support. Without you, the dissemination of information like this would not be possible. Drug science is, and always will be, independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. But by becoming a Drug Science Community member, you'll be helping us bring about change. You'll also receive access to exclusive events and will be able to attend all Drug Science events for free. To see how to become a community member, click on the link in the show notes. Now, where were we? Let's get back to the show. And of course, I've um, talked to you and uh, some of your other subjects and other people, and th- th- this concept of beings or entities that is has uh, always been extraordinarily interesting. And uh, you know, I've been slightly sort of fast. Well, I've been fascinated, if, if not a little skeptical of it. But but clearly, Chloe, for you, there was that sense. There was a, a sense that there were beings of sorts that were you were meeting for the first time under that. Uh, that experience, yes? Yes, uh, yeah, and it was very clear to me what they were communicating to me as well. Um, I, I somehow knew through and through that they had sentience and that they were not human, which I guess isn't an experience we'd ever have in any other part of our existence. So it's quite a strange thing to experience, the presence of a non-human sentient being and to, to know that. Could you see them or was it just a sense that they were there? So... I could, so I actually did. Um, I, I had. A, I was injected with DMT on two occasions. I came back um, two weeks later to, to redo it, and the first time I did see one of them um, very clearly, beautiful, uh, genderless being, come to check I was okay, <laughs> come to tell me to not be afraid, to not fear death. The the second time I didn't see any anything, but uh, once again it was a very strong feeling that they were present. I mean, as a psychiatrist, are you? meet quite often in your clinical practice people with very strong senses of things are different Mm. and uh, do you think this has given you more insights into what it might be like to have psychiatric problems? Absolutely and I think this is one of the the major takeaways for me I really can empathize with my patient's position more now and often when they describe their what we'd call psychotic experiences which is often very difficult for patients to describe I think I have a much better understanding and insight into what it is they mean. Um, it doesn't sound so bizarre to me anymore. No, no. I mean, on the other hand, of course, though, you, for you, the, the sense there was a positive valence to these uh, these interactions, where, of course, in psychosis, they're often negative. But, mm. but the construct is, sounds really quite similar. So the, the second time, it wasn't such a positive affect that, that accompanied it. It was a little bit more... Um, uh, felt a little bit like I wasn't supposed to be there or they didn't want me there. So not so positive. So Chris, I mean, I know Chris has done some some survey work as well around people using DMT. I mean, is it generally positive or I mean, what, what sort of, what's the sort of ratio of positive versus less positive interactions with uh, with entities? Well, in terms of, yeah, the, the actual entity 
I think the information we got mostly from our participants uh, in terms of surveys purely on entities, I haven't had the opportunity to look into that specifically, but I would say broadly speaking, we had both positive and negative experiences in regards to sometimes within the same experience, people had positive and negative encounters, like in terms of effective valence. But uh, when I look at the data with our participants, we see mostly uh, positively valenced encounters. So people having good emotional reactions uh, when they were encountering these these presences. And I would say that, that yeah, that, that appears to be definitely, you mentioned it now, David, one of the differences with psychosis is this, the paranoid ideation or, or the persecutory aspect of it appears to be somewhat different from the case of psychosis or even auditory verbal hallucinations that occur not only in psychotics, but also in in some healthy individuals. And uh, I think this is quite interesting in a way, because once we frame these experiences as part of drug intake, uh, there is a context already to these encounters in which maybe people can be better prepared for these kind of encounters and therefore, you know, they they can be better well received uh, in some shape or form. Um, I mean, you could draw even stronger parallels with the use of ayahuasca and animistic conceptions of reality and how the use of ayahuasca and other substances like this also generates a context around the idea of beings, entities in nature um, and things of the sort, which are kind of like functional for their society, if you will. Um, No, I can see that, but I also... there are two things that intrigue me, and, and I, you know, this is one of the reasons I've been dying for you to finish your experiments and get the results out. Because, you know, where, do, do we have a sense of where the entities come from? I mean, presumably, the, 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 wherever they are, there at least the, there's some signal in the brain imaging, is there? I think that, yeah, I mean, it's absolutely reasonable to think that, yeah, of course, there's a neural correlate to these very complex experiences. I think the tricky challenge that we have ahead with the data analysis is that these experiences of entities, although they can be quite certain for some individuals, uh, for other individuals, there's these kind of like characteristics of entity encounters, for example, the feeling of a presence, which doesn't necessarily mean that it's the same quality of experience of somebody encountering another person. So we've got some kind of like hypothesis around brain areas related to when we think about other minds, like theory of mind, that relate to this idea that there's an intentionality somewhere else that could maybe link up to these experiences. So these are hypotheses, and we're looking at the data now to see if we if we can get to the bottom of this. Yeah. Good. Well, when you finish, we'll uh, get you back on. You can share that with us. Fantastic. But yeah. uh, the... I mean, the the other aspect, I suppose, is the, the sense uh, that I know you've already written about, which is the relationship between these experiences and the near-death experience. Do you want to explain a bit about that and why you started thinking that they might be similar? Yeah, so near-death experiences, uh, I mean, I guess for, for people who are not entirely familiar with it, these are ev- events that occur in the proximity of death and are reported in a, in a relatively small but not so small percentage of the population uh, who undergo experiences to the vicinity of death, and they usually involve these feelings of peace or uh, these feelings of going through a black tunnel and coming out through the other side to the white light and encountering beings and presences. 
So this was kind of like reported some 40 years ago by the psychiatrist uh, called Raymond Moody when he wrote this book, Life After Death, uh, kind of like a popular book which really popularized and coined the near-death experience term. And even in that book, he, he mentioned the parallel between these near-death experiences and the and the experiences evoked by psychedelics. In this case, he made the parallel with, with LSD. So already in the, you know, in the initial conception, uh, there appears to be kind of like a, a similar thread between these two experiences, which revolved around this notion of spiritual type or mystical type experiences induced through different means. You know, the, the idea had been around for a while. And then in the 1990s, Rick Strassman, who did a lot of DMT studies in the U.S., he made the speculative connection that the DMT that we produce naturally in our bodies uh, becomes particularly increased uh, during this near-death experience phenomena. So we thought that there were striking phenomenological similarities within our subjects. So we were just interested, regardless of the speculation, that there might be actual DMT release during uh, death states, uh, that there might be an important overlap uh, to look. So that's what we did. We gave our participants a near-death experience questionnaire at the end of their experience. And then we collaborated with some colleagues in Belgium who actually study people who go through near-death experiences. And we compared the results. We tried to see the amount of overlap. And when we found a very striking overlap in many of the different features. So they must have been very pleased because they presumably have never really understood what the neurochemical basis of the near-death experience might be. So you're giving them at least some, some inkling and also your imaging, presumably. They could potentially map onto their studies, could they? Absolutely. I mean, to a certain extent, there's been some, some interesting models out there saying that you know, there's an important role for serotonin in these experiences and, and activity at temporal lobes, which is, you know, the same kind of like brain areas involved in epilepsy and other kind of like unusual phenomena. So there was a, there, there, there is basis to speculate on top of that. And also there's a group in, in Michigan, uh, the University of Michigan, uh, led by Jimo Borgin, who actually study uh, death states in rats and the production of, of endogenous DMT in rats. And what they basically think in that group is that DMT might be some form of um, neuromodulator, like endogenous neuromodulator for many of these unusual brain states. And this is very speculative, of course, but they're doing some actually good research into that. So it's, it's very nice. Well, yeah, this is clearly an area that's going to, to grow. And I mean, given that also that there's a, considerable increase in general research around psychedelics. Uh, it, it's fascinating to compare and contrast drugs like DMT and LSD. And But people typically, we, I don't recall any of our subjects in our LSD study or psilocybin study seeing entities or having the entity experience. So why might there be a difference between... We, we, all, we teach that these are all serotonergic two-way agonists, and yet... There are clear there are these subjective differences at least. My, my feeling is that there might be something about the intensity of the experience uh, that it can eventually reach into that. So there's interesting phenomenological kind of overlap between this idea of entity experiences and, for example, what is usually reported under LSD in nature environments in which they feel that everything is alive or everything is with presence to some degree. Yes, I see. Yeah. From interviewing a lot of people after the DMT experience and seeing that there's a kind of like a gradation between these entity encounters, 
my feeling is that there might be a link between these. This, this idea that you attribute sentience or presence or life, if you will, to the external. Yes. Uh-huh. And yeah, I see the idea of presence yeah. or sentience. Yes. Yeah. And then I guess that there are other hallucinogens uh, structurally very similar to uh, to DMT, like like 5-methoxy DMT you know, the, from the from the toad or from some other uh, plant sources. Do you think they would have the same kind of impact? What's your reading around that? Usually the the experience of 5-MeO, I've interviewed a few people in, in some some of the naturalistic work that we're doing, so meaning in, in you know, in the field, people taking it recreationally. Um, and what I've gleaned from, from those interviews is that the main difference with something like uh, 5-methoxy-DMT, which is this very potent uh, substance present in the buffalo very toad, is that people have less vivid, in terms of visual experience, hallucinations. Usually they report this idea of a white light, but nonetheless they call it the most intense psychedelic experience they've ever had, in which the, this idea of ego dissolution is complete. Uh, and they feel that they've actually crossed over beyond life. So they've actually gone through death. Um, so also another striking parallel with the near-death experience, but stronger in intensity. And, you know, we're, we're really investigating. It's really challenges to go through these interviews because the level of intensity is so high that people really find it hard to communicate what they went through. Yeah, I, if it's outside the realm of normal experience, there won't be much of a language, will there? Because <laughs> there won't be many people that have actually thought about developing a language to explain it. Exactly, and that's the importance of the work that we're doing here, I think, is uh, really developing a map, uh, trying to ground these experiences and, and yeah, give them Because one of the other, the other areas that's you know, become very relevant at present is the... Um, the potential clinical utility, I mean, starting with the use of psilocybin in our hands and in the John Hopkins and New York University groups trying to use it to help people with depression. And I think you've, Chloe, have you been, you've now been trained in, in psilocybin therapy, is that right? I have indeed, yes. Um, so you're yeah. proposing to start, a, a, be part of a trial which is going to be using psilocybin in, uh, in depression, I believe. Yes, um, absolutely. In Bristol, we're hoping to do it um, once, well, once the lockdown is over, hopefully we can <laughs> get going again. But the use of psilocybin has also then raised this interesting question about, well, will other psychedelics have um, antidepressant type effects? What your sense, uh, what's your thought about that, Chloe, in terms of, you know, do you think DMT might be an alternative? I know some, there are companies looking at that as a possibility. Yeah, I, I certainly do. I think um, a lot of what I've seen in my clinical practice is a lot of mental health problems um, arise from fear of loss and the need to control, control other people, control our environment. And I think there's something about the psychedelic experience that allows people to let go of that control. Uh, and to also face face loss and to ultimately face our own mortality. Um, and I do think this this fear of death does does underpin quite a lot of our our anxieties in life. So any drug that could help people to come to terms with that, I think could have profound um, positive effects on their mental health. So you you'd be supportive of of trials using DMT. Uh, it always it always seemed to me that psilocybin with its sort of four to five hour, trip would 
has has a kind of timeline. It gives people plenty of opportunity to engage if they want to with whatever might have caused or be perpetuating their their um, depression. I just wonder whether DMT might the effect might be too short to uh, to to allow people to properly sort of re-engage. I mean, I don't know. Do you think? Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I think it's about the the integration afterwards. Um, I mean, it certainly gave me a lot of material material that could be worked uh-huh. through with a therapist. So. Oh, even even your fifteen minute trip. Yes. Right? Oh, yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So, Chris, so you know, you're still in the process of analysis. How long before you think you'll have the uh, the full imaging data set with the fMRI aligned with the EEG ready? I think we'll we'll have the main results published uh, by the end of this year. I would presume. Yeah. Oh, that's exciting. Okay. Well, I'll certainly be tweeting them when they come out. <laughs> uh, and Chloe, I mean. Uh, Two questions, really. I mean, were you were you pleased that you were a subject? Oh, absolutely. Um, right. I wouldn't have changed it for anything. It's a fantastic experience. Would you do it again? I probably not in an MRI scanner again. Oh, <laughs> yeah. oh that's a fair. Oh. Actually, that's a fair point. Yeah, you were very brave. I, I have to say, you know, I'm not sure I would want to be given anything that it was quite so um, experiential when I <laughs> in a scanner. But, uh, but as you said, it, it, you, it, as soon as it, you took it, 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 as soon as it went into your vein, you, you were in the scanner yeah. anyway. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It would have been nice to have someone's maybe hand to hold when I came yeah. back around. But <laughs> yeah. Well, of course, that's yeah. what we do in the therapy and that's what you'll be doing exactly. in the uh, side-to-side yeah. therapy. Yeah, so well, I would do it again, just not in the scanner. I, I would just like briefly like to mention all of like gratitude to all of our participants who were brave enough and courageous enough to just step into this situation, you know, for the sake of science and, and really just, just go for it. Um, and I, yeah, it's just, thank you, Chloe. <laughs> I think also it's important, actually, Chris, it's important to tell the public, hang on, let's just, that none of these people ha- were were naive to, mind-altering substances. None of them received their first psychedelic in the scanner. That was one of the conditions, wasn't it? Because it, that would be a peculiarly um, an odd thing to do. Exactly. We didn't expose anything new to anybody uh, in that sense. Yeah. But you've exposed uh, our listeners to something really fascinating. And I want to thank you both. It's, it's been a really enjoyable discourse. And it's lovely to, to get to talk to one of our healthy volunteers... Who and with whom we could not do research, uh, but who rarely talk about it. So thank you, Chloe. Thank you, Chris. Thank and you. Um, good luck in the rest of your careers. I shall be following both of them with interest. Thank you both. Thank you, David. Thank you very much, David. And thank you, Chris. Thank you, Chloe. Well, thank you for listening. I think you uh, will have enjoyed that. It's uh, unusual to have a, a subject in a, a scientific trial talk about the experience, but uh, so pleased that Chloe was able and pleased to do that. I think you will agree it's a fascinating research which could have clinical implications and uh, if you keep following drug science uh, you'll find out whether it really does because we will be tweeting about it over the next few years. Please share the podcast with your friends and family and do go on to the drugscience.org.uk website. There you'll find the other podcasts and also you'll have an opportunity to sign up to become a member of the drug science community. This is a community of supporters who underwrite what we do Uh, donate to us and give us the ability to continue to do our groundbreaking work in terms of drug science, research, education and public discourse. 